Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, it is the 26th of April, so if we're going to put this out on the 27th. So, as always, if something happens and we miss it, then you know we apologize. Uh, but uh, I didn't mean to say that so dismissively, but um, <laughs> we do sincerely apologize. Uh, I'm here with just Tammy and Andy this week. We've been having a lot of guests on recently. How's it going? And- hey, guys. Uh, I'm all right. Um, yeah, I was just saying, I think, you know, we want to return the show to its core just to discuss some of the stuff that's been happening. There's just a lot of stuff that's been happening that we haven't been able to weigh in on, whether it's, uh, you know, the actions in Minnesota or what's happening in North Carolina right now around uh, police shootings. And, um, you know, there's this whole vaccine thing that we wanted to talk about as well. But the first thing that we're going to talk about is something that I, I don't know, I didn't really mean to do this. And I saw some exasperated responses, because apparently, this is a very basic question that I didn't know about. And I got the sort of smattering of some helpful academics, uh, linguists telling giving me actually helpful information, and then others being like, Oh, man, this idiot again. And, uh, you know, it doesn't matter. But the, <laughs> to the helpful ones, thank you. And to the second, you know, it, it was about this sort of idea. And I remember when I first thought about it, it was when I was sitting at lunch with my friend Andrew, who grew up in like sort of uh, Westchester, New York. And we realized that we have like the exact same voice, right? Intonations. He's oh, Korean really? American as well. Oh, That's yeah. So yeah. And so it didn't really make sense to us because, you know, we had grown up however many miles apart and totally different types of areas. <laughs> um, and how did we arrive with the same exact intonation, accent, everything mm. like that? And so <laughs> I've been thinking about this for a while and I've done very little, you know, independent research into reading into it, but I thought about it and it sort of kicked off a conversation in the discord for our show in which a lot of people are weighing in and sort of had theories about this. And I don't think there's a real unified theory that we can present. You know, I did read a lot of the stuff and it seems like it's based on all the expected things like, you know, where you grow up, where, how many people are you around that are like you, you know, of your Mm -hmm. same background. And does that sort of all metastasize into a type of accent? Um, So were you looking at Korean specific or Asian American specific or what kind of stuff? No, I mean, I think that it definitely, you know, there is like an identifiable, for example, like Mexican-American Southern California accent that mm-hmm. goes beyond generations, right? Similar to, same as Texas, I would say. So I don't think it's just limited to that. I think it's immigrants generally, just as there is an Italian-American accent in New York City or in the tri-state area that seems to have gone, you know, five generations, right? <laughs> like it's, it's very specific, so it makes sense. Now, whereas like the Italian one, you know, has been shown on television many times and uh, is easy to trace. This one is a little bit harder, I think, and it's a little more subtle. And so I wanted to play this game with you to start the show. I'm going to play some Asian accents. Right? This is all from, uh, what, where is this from, Andy? You found it. It's some archive no, of accents. Um, your twin, J. King, put it in the Discord, um, J with an I. It's from George Mason University and uh, beyond the base URL. I don't know what department it is. But it's a cool resource because it has all these different accents from around the world. And I would say over a hundred different languages, right? It's, it's cool. I spent like a couple hours 
not a couple hours, let's say 40 minutes. Here's the first one. Okay. Please call Stella. Ask her to bring these things with her from the store. Six spoons of fresh snow peas, five thick slabs of blue cheese, and maybe a snack for her brother Bob. We also need a small plastic snake and a big toy frog for the kids. She can scoop these things into three red bags and we will go meet her Wednesday at the train station. Okay, I feel like that one's easy. Can you do you know which one that is? Singaporean? <laughs> That's so specific. No. As <laughs> no, opposed no, to what? It's not. Wait, wait. wait, wait. these are Asian, right? I thought well, these were yeah, but you know, you have to expand your idea of what Asia is. I was um, thinking, Andy, yeah. but it thoughts? sounds like a Singaporean. Yeah, I was right? thinking it was British inflected, yeah. Chinese speaker. So, mm-hmm. but it doesn't sound Hong Kong because Hong Kong's more sing song. Exactly. Right. But it could be yeah. like it could be like someone who went to a English medium school in Shanghai. I don't know. That's way too specific. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Hindi native Hindi speaker, oh, which wow. I thought was obvious. Okay. Wait, really? Oh, yeah, okay. So we're obvious. not doing East Asia. We're doing all Asia. Yeah, I said expand God, your idea Andy. of what Asia okay. What is Sorry. this? We're, you know, we're Pan-Asian here. Um, <laughs> Andy's the only bigot, apparently. Like, what? That doesn't Andy, count? Andy's canceled um, right before Asian American Heritage Month. Exactly. And he's going to not pay attention to anything. That did not really Chinese sound. Chinese parts anyway. of Asian American. Yeah. It did. It, I thought that that one was obvious because of the uh, vowel expressions, right? Like there I said, I said of... British English, so that's part right, of it. Right. Yeah, I thought that I too, but it sounded Southeast Asian. Anyway, okay, cool. You're this still canceled. Okay, <laughs> yeah. second one. Please call Stella. Ask her to bring these things with her from the store. Six spoons of fresh snow peas, five thick slabs of blue cheese, and maybe a snack for her brother, Bob. We also need a small plastic snack and a big toy frog for the kids. She can scoop these things into three red bags, and we will go meet her Wednesday at the train station. Okay, that one's easy. Korean. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, but Tammy, what makes that (laughs) Korean, do you think? Because I was like, this one's way too easy. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, Oh, man, I'm so bad at this. You can't say they're easy every time. Oh, I think all of these are easy. Now, as for the inevitable question that is being in the minds of our listeners, what the hell are these people saying? I have no idea. I imagine what they did is they wrote a sentence with almost yeah. every single tone possible in it, and like, that's the exactly that's the sentence. Quick that brown fox. Came it's like that. an yeah. acting exercise or something. With the Korean one, I think it is uh, vowel uh, consonants, right? It is like a yeah. softer consonant um, than perhaps other English speakers. Now, this person who was recorded actually lived in Korea. And so I don't think that that really matters. I actually think that the some people are telling me, you know, there's definitely like an LA Korea town mm-hmm. accent, which I can totally recognize. Definitely. But like my cousin, um, Helen has it. <laughs> yeah. But her sister doesn't. And that's oh, always been interesting. What is that? What's the, what are the characteristics? Well, it, you know, it, it, it's, it is somewhat gendered. So with the women, it's like you, you do like an up, question at the end of every sentence and um there's it's inflected with kind of like what you would think is a valley girl type (laughs) of accent and with the men it's much more just kind of like uh i don't know it's It's a little more inflected with like yeah it's sort of bro-y but also (laughs) you know mixed in all the time with like certain parts of aave or or even like you know latino 
car culture type <clears throat> of stuff. Totally. But are we saying there's aspects of the Korean language that are determinative here? Like the, you said softer consonants? Is that I don't know. That's why I asked on yeah. Twitter. But I think so. From what I, I read, so. yes. I think that it translates because of the mother language, right? So, that's the only real thing that would make sense. So what consonants like the DT or the K? Right, kind right. Of DT. Uh, and there are certain consonants that don't exist in Korean, right? Um, well, I noticed there's a very hard R in that one just now. Is there mm-hmm. like a hard R sound in Korean? Or maybe that was like a, a learned R? No, like, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think it's more the latter because to make up for the softness of the right. R. <laughs> right. But also, yeah, it's funny <laughs> in that one because R. it's like it's like obviously like a fob, like the person <laughs> who said that thing that Jay just played. But then... I don't, think LA, the, I don't think she got on the boat. I think she's in Korea. Or, okay. She's, she's in Korea. She's like in Korea. But like, <laughs> yeah. okay, so she never boarded the boat. But also like the people who are kind of fobby or who are just raised in like the enclave, like as Jay was saying with the K-Town accent, it does incorporate some of that stuff. Like even it, if they can't yeah. speak Korean, they like sound like they're speaking Korean, exactly. that's, which is that's, hilarious. That's, that's, that's what I was saying. It's right. like, yeah. and it's not, it's not necessarily... Like people are like, oh, well, if you're in an enclave, then you speak that way. I don't think that's true because, you know, there are even kids that I grew up in North Carolina who talk like that. And it's like, it's not like there was a lot of us. There's like, it's like if you go to Korean church a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's it. Somebody theorized that it's a church. That's what it is. (laughs) No, it's like 100%. But (laughs) if you're hearing it from me, I think I do it. But then my uh, wife was telling me that I don't. But then, and she said, my sister does it. Then as and that her husband, who's the whole thing, more interesting because <laughs> my sister's husband is half Korean, and he was raised in uh, Cleveland, you know. And so it's like, well, mm. what would what like how would they do it? I don't do it, but I think I do it. I think it's more just like with the Korean males, it's like a deeper voice and kind of slow talking, and um, there's some sort of like intonation yeah. that I can always identify. Um, you know, like uh, our friend Ask a Korean definitely has it, which I think he admitted, right? He did, like if you've ever talked to him, he 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 has that, and that's partially because he moved to the United States, I think, when he was a teenager, mm-hmm, so it yeah. makes more sense. Well, but you know, I think the untrained ear couldn't hear it, right? Okay, so, let's do wait, another one. So, as a non-Korean, to me, the language sounds like it ends in a lot of questions, like the sentences in Korean, right? Do you think that is also something oh, that kind really? of transfers? Oh, so over? maybe that's what translates. Like that's kind of the uptick. Talk. Uptick, yeah. yeah. It's actually, huh. hmm, that's interesting. I don't know if I would it's agree actually with that like, assessment of Korean, but. Yeah, maybe like, I think it's, technically it's kind of a flat language. Like it doesn't have right, a lot okay. of peaks and valleys, but. Um, right, well, which English. is why there's a lot of Korean monotone speakers like myself. <laughs> yeah, okay. When I was on the TV show, they're like, does your voice do anything? Uh, can it go up and down? And I was like, no. But you know, you hired me, so this is your fault. Because <laughs> English, English naturally it goes up and down. Right. Mine so English, English has a tone. That's that's yeah. my theory. Or a yeah. Or I don't know. We're probably using all these terms wrong. But like, <laughs> <laughs> tone is the right. But it like it moves. It moves. It's like inflected in a way that's yeah. like more dramatic. Right. It's more melodic. Yeah. Um, okay. Next one. Please call Stella. Ask her to bring these things with her from the store. Six spoons of fresh snow peas, five thick slabs of blue cheese, and maybe a snack for her brother Bob. We also need a small plastic snake and a big toy frog for the kids. She can scoop these things into three red bags, and we will go meet her Wednesday at the train station. Another one that I thought was very easy, but apparently... I know, I know this one, okay. so I'll explain. Okay, so don't do it. Okay, you then do? Tammy, 
Yeah. Okay, this one again, I, I it started out sounding Chinese American, but then later on it sounded Southeast Asian oh, American. You are correct. Me. Your first instinct was correct. Oh, it okay. is a Mandarin speaker in Berkeley, California, I believe. Okay, right? yeah. the California um, part. And so was this is somebody obvious. who actually I think <laughs> that one you can do you can tell by the R's because uh I think Chinese speakers sort of skip the R sometimes. no i'm serious i mean so the soft r there is the one and then we this one is from our discord which uh thank you for bringing it in um you know they they started the people in our discord started recording yeah it's amazing which was funny i thought but uh here we go wait what the hell ask her to bring these things with her from the store six spoons of fresh snow peas this one has a musical accompaniment. This is my remix. She can small plastic snake and a big toy frog for the kids. She can scoop these things in the pirate bag and Okay. Wait, Jay, Jay, Jay. Well, I don't, I don't even want to keep this. I made a remix of that. So I was actually hoping we would like end the show with that or something. That's not, oh, they didn't, they didn't we can do that, that later. We can put it back. But I don't... Um, That one... I think that... Who was that? That was Chinese. I mean, I know who it is. Well, I want to name them. They're Korean. Oh, they're Korean. Yeah. Huh. Okay. I, mean, I couldn't I hear it because the bass came out. I know. Strong. I know. I know. Well, I picked the wrong one. <laughs> okay. Great, well, though. that was. <laughs> I, I don't really have anything else to say except that I thought that that website was fun, and I think that doing blind. The only problem with that one is that they need to put a quiz in. You know, like yeah. they need to just press. Uh, so George Mason, George Mason, is that right? George yes. Mason, if you're listening, please, you know, like make it more fun. <laughs> like the New York Times. Addressing, addressing a man named George Mason. Right. Not- I feel like I would get 100% on that quiz, but it's the type of quiz that I know that when I actually took, I would get like a 40% on. You know? that, that last one, that Berkeley kid was the one that felt the most American and recognizably American. Mm. And, oh, really? And Interesting. Asian American. And like second generation as opposed to first. And I, I played it for like my wife and, and my brother in law. I was like, can you imagine like a white or black person sounding like, like this? Like, no, absolutely not. Right? It was like <laughs> such right. a Asian American sound. And my theory with Mandarin speakers is that it's nasal and vocal fry. Cause mm. I think there's, I think that kind of carries over from Mandarin a little bit, but that I don't know. I don't know if there's like a pan Asian theory for, for all for this. I do also kind of think, um, you know, you're talking about your sister and, and her husband earlier. I think we also changed the way we talk in our 20s. And so it isn't necessarily determined by like, I think so. No, uh, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> well, I, when Jay was talking about like the K-Town accent, like I do think actually that is, could sort of be enlarged to general like enclave Asian SoCal life. Like you could, you could walk into right. like a pan Asian American space in like, Sanguirol or like Cerritos or something. And I feel like they might sound the same as like the way we described the K-Town accent. Yeah. So in a way, I think like through socialization, these things actually like aren't that ethnically specific either. It's, it's not necessarily vertical. It could also be horizontal. Yeah, definitely. Right? Like the Fung Brothers kind of like community <laughs> of, I don't know, American speech or something. I've... Yeah. But I don't, um, does East Coast and West Coast, I mean, you're saying a transcendent geography for you and your friend Jay and Oh, yeah, I think so. I, I mean, don't know if New York Asian American sounds the same as California. California it, sounds very it specific. Yeah. I don't think that's, I, I think that, that people think that's true, but I don't actually think that's true. 
Yeah. And the reason why is that like, I think that, that, uh, you can base that when you find those actual markers, it's not, it's usually because they're using language that is taken from other cultures, you know, and that's, that's how you can sort of tell like Eddie Wong, who grew up in Orlando speaks like sort of this, uh, sort of right, uh, exaggerated version of like flushing, nineties uh, uh, Asian American. And, um, that's but you can tell that because of the black parts of it right not because of the right. parts that are not now of course every language and everyone who speaks has some sort of mix of all of that but i think the specific regional markers are from that um like from the mix part of it but i don't know if it's from sort of uh something that's within the household that's like handed oh, down yeah from... i don't think it's the household but i think it i think like it, you can tell like a like an enclave Asian American from like Long Island. Cause they like talk like they're from Long Island. Like there's like <laughs> that regional part that's layered on top of the like black vernacular, Coffee. like Asian American part. <laughs> yeah. It's, but then there's like also like, I find that the people who have the least accent or the most uh, entrenched regional accent where you actually can't tell that they're Asian are older Asian Americans who were born in the United States. So like pre 1965. So like in, for example, in like <laughs> Ursula's documentary, there she goes around to these cops and they sound like stereotypical New York City cops, uh-huh. you know. And um, but that's not necessarily true of Andrew Yang, for example, <laughs> the Asian who speaks the most right now publicly. Andrew Yang is very obviously uh, his voice is very Asian American. You think very, so? Really? Oh that's yeah, yeah. I, I can tell. Spent too much time listening to him, thank God. But um, I'll try. <laughs> I can tell. Yeah. Um, okay. Anyway, not to get too race sciencey here, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, we thought that that was a fun conversation, and I don't yeah. have anything to say about it. But um, <laughs> you know, I, we're we're gonna we're gonna keep it we're gonna keep it moving here. Yeah. Um, there's something more important to talk about this week, which is uh, right now as we stand, and this is as of last week, so it's probably worse. Um, there's less than 600 million vaccine doses that have been administered around the world, and almost all of them, about 75%, are in the 10 or about 10 high-income countries. Um, now, there's about 130 countries with two and a half billion people who have yet to administer one dose of the vaccine, right? And um, we see the consequences for this in right now India, which is going through a yeah. horrific. Uh, version of the pandemic of their own pandemic and but we also see it in like the sort of disconnect that we feel where here in the united states i feel like most people think that the pandemic is over but last Mm -hmm. week was like the debt was the most cases that have been worldwide throughout the pandemic right that is last week was like the like way worse than when italy was you know Mm -hmm. like being sort of destroyed when the united states was being ravaged like this is we're now in some ways if you think globally um or just globally speaking in the worst part of the pandemic and you know that's scary to think about given that there are solutions now that we didn't have back then and so a lot of the conversation i think uh everywhere rightfully has just been about well why is this happening um right and who is at fault why is it that like in the United States, it seems like, I mean, I, it's not even, it seems like, I think in most states you can just walk in now and get a vaccine, 
right? Like there's a, the, the supply has outstripped the demand and that leads to all sorts of policy questions about, well, why, why did we do it this way where it took six months to roll it out if mm-hmm. this was going to be the outcome? But like, you know, more importantly, it's like, well, what are we doing? You know, like we have uh, people all across the world who are still getting sick. Those people all yeah. become unique places where mutations can happen. Um, and those mutations, you know, eventually could become vaccine resistant right now. I don't think that there's much proof that any of the vac- the mutations right now are vaccine resistant, but obviously we didn't really see a world where all these uh, mutations would be running around anyway. Like, you know, the longer that we have, the more mutations that can take place. So I don't know, Tammy, uh, what, what's your general sense of what's going on right now? Yeah, well, I just like you guys have been following all of the reports on the Gates Foundation and Pfizer and... I think we had an episode really early on where we talked about vaccine apartheid and sort of COVID apartheid. And um, I don't know. I mean, it seems to me that a lot of this has to do with like global trade policy, right? And the WTO and just the fact that we've put up so much infrastructure to protect pharmaceutical companies that they can, you know, somebody like Gates can come in and just completely manipulate the system so that they turn what could have been an intellectual property sharing regime into one that just makes money for the richest people in the world. So, um, yeah, I don't know if I have anything intelligent to contribute except for just, yeah, just feeling a lot of rage and, and also feeling just so much compassion and helplessness reading about India this week. Right. And we should say that as of like three hours ago, Andy Slavitt, who's one of the people who works on, um, the Biden team. Is that right? I mean, he's sort yeah. of one of the stars yeah. of coronavirus. He was like a Twitter. Medicaid person under Obama too. Right. And he'd stop drinking so much, please. Uh, would um, He said that the U.S. just released 60 million AstraZeneca doses to other countries as they became available. Yesterday, I think the Biden administration announced that they were going to send raw materials so that India could sort of make its own version of the Oxford mm-hmm. uh, vaccine in addition to PPE and oxygen. And so some aid is, is coming. Like there has been a response now, like as of last week, when none of this had happened, it seemed like the United States might just allow the rest of the world to burn. But um, we should say that since we came up with this episode, like some things have changed, right? Mm-hmm. So um, people should adjust their read on it accordingly as we have uh and like what 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 do you see as sort of the the main factor as why we have this sort of in it in it inequality is not even like the right word it seems so right? feeble it, right right it, it seems to but just basically well some parts of the world are going to be okay and the rest of the world is just going to have this thing kick around until yeah they reach herd immunity and some portion of their population is dead yeah yeah yeah, no, I read the, you know, the same New Republic article uh, as Tammy was mentioning about Bill Gates. It was interesting, you know, I think the headline would be something like Bill Gates is the, if you had to blame like one man or one institution, it would be the Gates Foundation. And that's uh, still being litigated publicly. He's taking a lot of heat. He recently gave an interview where he just said like, he doesn't think repealing IP would help. And it seems like it's a lie and people are taking taking him on for that. Um, the other interesting thing about the article was kind of answering the question of, well, I mean, I think people might be asking, how could it be otherwise, right? Isn't this just how things are supposed to go? And the article yeah. 
gives a bit of a context that this kind of actually is really this idea of like a global IP monopoly regime is really dates back to the WTO um, and intellectual property laws in the 1990s. So there's only been 20 yeah, years or so, so of recent. this, right? And it's a real, uh, I don't know, kind of like maybe nostalgic for the 90s, like, well, Bill Gates, WTO. It's like very, it's a very like Seattle P&W 1990s thing to like, to, to, to read about these things. I I feel like it's like an Adbusters article. (laughs) So depressing. Vindicated, vindicated all those protests. It it made them not abstract anymore or like about like, like some, you would have to at least have some idea about what the people are upset about but like so some of the history of bill gates here is that his interest in world sort of vaccine issues started in 1999 as you said and he wanted to help create a uh, vaccine for something called rotavirus which is something that goes through if you have like a poor water supply right and um it says that he uh, in 1999 the foundation which is bill and melinda gates foundation invested 750 million dollars in seed money to the global alliance for vaccines and immunization with the goal of providing rotavirus vaccines among others around the world the foundation also invested in rotavac a rotavirus vaccine that hit the market at one dollar per vo- dose significantly cheaper than existing vaccines um the low cost also pressured competitors to lower their prices and so Right. Like there is like a start to this that seems innocuous or almost helpful in a lot of ways. Right. He's like, well, I'm going to use my money. Like, what am I going to do with all this money? And um, I'm going to I'm going to make cheaper pharmaceuticals for people. But the underlying part of that people didn't interrogate at the time is that like the cheapest way to make uh, all these all these pharmaceuticals is to just have Rotovac be open sourced in a lot <laughs> yeah. of ways. Right. Um, right. As opposed to relying on the market to drop its prices on other rotavirus uh, vaccines. Now, at the time, I don't think anyone was really thinking about that outside of, you know, a few angry people in Seattle, but, um, <laughs> but <laughs> or maybe but they that, weren't even, right? Yeah. Um, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, but at, that was also the time where the debate over um, AIDS treatments had peaked, you know, right. and like Clinton was covering for pharmaceuticals and like South Africa was asking for help. And like, you know, people like Gates were essentially setting it up so that, you know, we would just have these proprietary drugs that would cheat the global South. So, yeah, I feel like looking back, like I should have been so angry. <laughs> you know, I mean, there was so much that happened in that kind of late 90s moment to set up this entire regime. And he has come off looking like this like global health hero for so many years to so many people. Yeah. Right. And and it was like not even uh I think that he's getting a lot of blowback now from the left. But yeah. even like as of this fall, right? He oh was gosh. sort of being touted by places, even like the New York Times totally. as being this sort of avenging not avenging, but this sort of like, you know, saintly hero that yeah. was gonna solve the coronavirus for all of us. And at the beginning of coronavirus, he was sort of the guy who everyone was looking to solve this mm-hmm. thing, right? Like he was mm-hmm. talking about vaccine rollouts and people were like, well, Bill Gates, got, and you know, to his credit, he was right that there was a huge risk of the global pandemic that we would be totally unprepared for. But then his solution to that seems to be, you know, to just basically have this almost ideological approach to IP, right? Yeah. It's not pragmatic in any sort of way. It's not market driven. Like mm-hmm. it's, essentially just ideological he's just like well i'm not going to change that because i actually believe in patents i don't care what the what the what the uh solution is because yeah pragmatically the best thing to do is to have the and in terms of like if all you want to do is get richer is to have 
parts of the world not being crushed and having their entire economy shut down because of this. But like that doesn't seem to enter right. decision calculus. It's literally just ideological. The I mean the argument are good. the arguments they make are pragmatic, like that'll be more effective this way, or there's no loss of effectiveness, or there would be no gain in effectiveness to repeal IP, which can be empirically challenged. But uh, in between the lines, people would say, like, you know, yeah, like you said, Gates is just ideological that if you make something, you should get paid for it, and people can't get these things for free. And he actually, there's a line, uh, I think in the New Republic article where he says, he just kind of slips and says, uh, you know, all these people just want this for free and, and right away, as if that's a bad thing, right? Like, I know. like no, yeah, right. but that is what we want. Like, we want for free, <laughs> free for everyone and as soon as possible. Like, why is that such a bad thing? Right. Um, yeah, so I mean, in terms of like, you know, it, it might be a little bit insensitive to do this, but to zoom out a little bit, I think. I do think that maybe this would this could be seen as a bookend to like the '90s as a sort of apotheosis of like free market ideology and Gates and WTO passing, and then you know with COVID, I think for the first time, uh, you know, a lot of like young people today would be like, oh, like there there is such a thing as inequality and colonial versus you know colonizing and neo-colonized countries, and we're not all we don't all have access to the same stuff and. You know, whereas, you know, the rich countries of the world are going to be pretty well vaccinated by the end of this year, Mm -hmm. some might not be vaccinated for like two more years. And that's real, right? That's a real physical material difference as opposed to before where you could kind of say, well, you know, we have our version of Starbucks and they have their version, but we're all, you know, in it together in this in this free trade system. Um, I think, you know, the the sense of apartheid is probably, you know, strongest as it's been in like 20, 30 years that, Mm. you know, there's two different there's two like halves of the, of, of the planet earth, right. And how they're divided up. Right. Right. And you know, it's not just, there are wealthy countries that also have not done much vaccination. Right. So, yeah. Um, it seems like it's not really splitting it in half. It's like splitting it by 10% or something yeah. like that. Totally. Or 15%. Um, and, uh, I don't know. It's, 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 uh, it's distressing. So like what, what, and especially since it's interesting to me, I think that a private citizen, which is what Bill Gates is, has so much influence on all of this, right? So from the beginning of the coronavirus, the first thing he did was he started this thing called ACT, A-C-T, which is uh, uh, the accelerator for COVID therapy, I think is what it is. Yeah, and, right. um, you know, from, this is from this article that we keep citing, which is in the, is it in the New Republic or the mm-hmm. Nation? The it's New a New Republic. Republic. And it was called... Bill Gates' vaccine monster, um, which I think was it was a great article. It was extremely it was really clearly written. written. Who wrote it? We should credit the person oh, yeah. in the notes. But um, Gates' marquee COVID-19 initiative started relatively small. Two days before the WHO declared a pandemic on March 11, 2020, the Bill Gates and Melinda Gates Foundation announced something called the Therapeutics Accelerator, a joint with initiative with MasterCard and the charity group, the Wellcome <laughs> no, Trust, no, to no, identify no, and develop potential treatments for the novel coronavirus doubling as a social branding exercise for the giant of global finance the accelerator reflected gates's familiar for, uh, formula of corporate philanthropy which he is applied to everything from malaria to malnutrition in retrospect it was a strong indicator that the gates dedication to monopoly medicine would survive the pandemic even before he and his foundation officers had begun to say so publicly um, so you kind of see the game there, right? Yeah. It is sort of benevolent corporate and banking interests um, saying we're going to solve this thing without disrupting our system. And you can 
theorize that the reason why they actually did this is because they saw some threat to the way that the system would work, which I think it right now we can comfortably say it is. Um, you know, even when the yeah. president of the country is giving like uh, raw materials and millions of doses out now, that's not going to solve the problem in India, but it certainly is something that would go against what Bill Gates would want, right? It seems like he wants everyone to have to yeah, pay for this stuff. Yeah, that's true. I mean, um, I think what's so distressing, though, is like that accelerator that you described is technically housed under the WHO. Like it's so, you know, and I think there was this kind of moment where despite all of what we know about the way that power works in the world, there was potentially like an opening for cooperation, you know, and even now, like obviously a lot of com countries have signed on to try to eliminate, you know, the IP part of the World Trade Agreement and everything. But um, the fact that basically Bill Gates like said no to this to like all of these countries who wanted to do something just through the WHO and instead like the WHO was basically just like operating has operated like for the Gates Foundation. Yeah. Right. Well, so it, there's it's a little up. more complicated than that, but that is I, Tammy. I agree that's the outcome of it. Like so, basically, the WHO has tried at times to float these trial balloons, saying. Yeah. Well, what if we uh, just cooperate? What if the Oxford formula everyone could just get? Mm -hmm. And even the people at Oxford felt that way. I know. Right? Like, and so at the beginning. And so, um, you know, the Gates Foundation, along with WHO, came up with this thing called COVAX, right? And basically, it was like essentially like revenue sharing or something like that, where the wealthy companies would, countries would help vaccinate 20% of the poorer countries' populations, mm -hmm. right? And um, I think that still exists today. Yeah, that's But uh, essentially what Gates has done is that uh, he's mostly intervened in any effort to try and get the um, to try and get the the IP and the patents lifted. And, you know, and it's been a very specific action from him. It's not like it's something that is like, uh, it's, you know, something that we can just theorize. Like he has actually yeah. come out and said these things. So um, this was at the beginning when when Oxford was doing it, was sort of making progress. They said uh, a few weeks later, Oxford, urged on by Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. This is when Oxford was talking about perhaps maybe making it an open source type mm -hmm. project. Reverse course and signed an exclusive vaccine deal with AstraZeneca that gave the pharmaceutical giant sole rights and no guarantee of low prices, right? And so, like, I don't know. This is a frustrating thing for me where it's like, it's not even like AstraZeneca really came up with the science behind it, this, right? Yeah, like, they yeah. just own it. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, those types of interventions, you can see the sort of disaster that they created right now. Um, yeah. And I yeah. don't think that's particularly debatable. Um, the, the article uses this phrase that the pharmaceutical industry has a domino theory, almost like a Cold War, like domino theory, which is to say that you can't let one country um, kind of go, get around IP for fear that it'll lead to other countries doing it. So that's the big fear, right? And yeah. so the United States, like donating AstraZeneca to the rest of the world, doesn't actually violate it. It's actually philanthropy, right? It's we still hold on to the IP. We still are the exclusive makers of this, and we're just going to generously donate it to the rest of the world um, in in a way that kind of upholds AstraZeneca's power, the United States' power. Um, so in that sense, it actually I think is completely in line with the Gates Foundation approach, right? Which is for the most part, right? Those with the those with the IP have all the power. And then philanthropy is used to sort of sanitize or be good PR um, for them. And, um, you know, the article also makes this point that the pharmaceutical companies 
the Gates Foundation has this really good reputation, and they've done a lot of, you know, made a lot of effort to, to generate this good reputation. Pharmaceutical companies know they have a bad reputation. So what they do is partner with the Gates Foundation, right? Yeah. And, and this kind of launders their reputation. And universities, like the University of Washington, which I know we've all had different relationships with over the years. What, what do they do? Friends. Well, no, they just get so much money from the Gates Foundation. So oh, even, do? you know, in talking that's about true. our, um, yeah, like there's. Right. But it's, you know, phila- and, right. And that's all still the philanthropy model. Totally. And so right. when in the beginning of the pandemic, when we were all talking about Seattle flu study, like that yeah. was like the major study right. that was cited and all, like all of that yeah. funding, the medical science research right. funding at UW is like Gates money. Right. So, the, so the question isn't so much, are those individual initiatives good or bad? Like obviously in a vacuum, it's good to have this stuff, have AstraZeneca donate to the rest of the world. It's good to have all this funding for these projects, but the question is like, well, does it actually retain or sustain a power structure that is unequal? And in a situation like this, obviously, like, has produced a massive crisis in, in much of the world. Um, so I think that's actually the interesting aspect where it doesn't seem like I mean, Gates is not a scientist, right? So his main yeah. thing, his main intervention, his main expertise is like, as this, as Jay said, he has his, he just basically projects a benevolent, saintly image that allows the pharmaceuticals to kind of um, stay seeing the shadows. Like you don't see Pfizer's CEO talking too much, I guess. They just kind of link themselves up with the Gates Foundation. Um, Although they've all been speaking really publicly throughout the pandemic, because I think they actually feel like they are heroes of the pandemic. Yeah, that's true. And they haven't been shy about projecting their image. I mean, which is that's actually and really been, interesting, yeah. you know? And there's all those articles making them look like heroes. Yeah, which I know is something, Andy, you were militating against early on, but I think we're still in that world. One pointed out like in 1976, when Bill Gates was running Microsoft in New Mexico, he wrote some angry letter at people who were using his software for free and how like, you know, anyone, (laughs) anyone who makes software should get paid for it. So this stuff, you know, it kind of runs deep. And um, I think people have said like, well, this is how Microsoft got rich. It's not that Microsoft invented something brand speaking new, right? They just kind of monopolized the industry. Yeah, yeah. And they they enforced all of these rights and they sort of acquired things and then they enforced those patents and, you know, they built and built. And built. Same with Apple, obviously, yeah. mm-hmm. right? Everyone knows, like, the origin story of Apple and, and Xerox and, you know, like, why one group being much more aggressive about it than the other. And this is sort of the basis of the, modern tech economy with this <laughs> yes. type of thing. And so I don't think it's too unfair to sort of take Bill Gates to task for that. Um, but, you know, I think that the question that's going to be raised by his defenders and, you know, they will, there will be many, right? Mm-hmm. I think that the people who hate Bill Gates are actually quite a small minority, right? Or even blame him for this um, is, yeah, I mean, and there are two right. questions that arise. I think the first is like, well, you know, is there another option realistically at this point? Um, I think that this is the first time, and this is what is interesting about this moment. This is really the first time that another option seems to be possible. Like when else have people like asked, can we just suspend pharmaceutical IP rights? Like never, never. Um, And it sort of took a global pandemic to get to this point. And so if we think about things that could change during it, global pandemic, it could just be that the pharmaceutical uh, industry gets changed in a lot of ways, right? But it it also seems like, you know, despite the pandemic and despite 
people understanding that it's in their best, it's in everyone's best interest, monetarily, financially, morally, whatever, to get this thing under control around the world. Yeah. Um, that is probably not going to happen. <laughs> you know, and that is crazy to think about. I mean, I, do you guys feel like, I mean, because I guess the one time this has something like this has happened is like at the height of the AIDS crisis with like ACT UP right. and gay men's health crisis. And so in some ways, like we have this incredible like activist inheritance of of gay rights folks and, you know, AIDS folks. But like, yeah, I agree with you. Like, are we just going to fuck this up again? <laughs> like, Oh, yeah. Right. So there's like a, a thing in South Africa about how, um, right, uh, there was like South Africa just sort of unilaterally decided to start creating some sort of therapeutic. And then mm -hmm. they came under a lot of fire for that. But um, and I do remember that part of ACT UP and part of that type of activism was, you know, lobbying pharmaceutical companies to, you know, just release the patents and allow people to do this worldwide. And I don't know, I don't think, I think it is too cynical to say that the reason why Bill Gates got involved in this is because he saw a threat to global IP and in the pharmaceutical industry because of these types of crises and decided to sort of uh, demiss to sort of like neuter them, you know, through mm -hmm. his own philanthropy. And yet that's sort of what he's done, you know? <laughs> <laughs> why do you think that's too cynical? You yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It, 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 it's just like, a, I feel like at some point, um, if basically what you're, maybe he did do it because of that, but then it's, it just seems, I don't know. I feel like at <laughs> some level, like people just do things and that of course they have an ideology when they do things and mm -hmm. that leads to a bad result. So in some ways the intention doesn't matter. Like yeah, I don't care. Yeah. If, I don't really care if Bill Gates is like had it was like scheming in some sort of dark room with five other people <laughs> right. and writing things on a napkin and saying like this is how we keep neoliberalism <laughs> forever you know like i don't care if that scene happened or not right the results are sort of what they are and the other question that is and this is for the left you know um we are very used to sort of agitating against states and state power right and yet we seem to be at this moment where individual people might have more power than state governments. So Bill Gates Seriously. is definitely more powerful in world health than like fucking Canada, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. He's more important in world health than like every Asian country except China probably, <laughs> right? Um, he's more important than, uh, I, look, I don't mean to say this all in the, the negative way, but he's more important than like uh, the entire country of Switzerland, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. And so is it time to sort of begin a type of agitation where we start to think of these individuals almost as powerful state entities, right? And I'm sure that a lot of people already do that, right? But I mean, this seems like the clearest proof that we have that one individual can sort of circumvent the entire world order by himself, right? And, and his own philanthropy and his own war chest and his influence. Um, and like, what does that even look like? Right. I and mean, Bill Gates, like, is it, do we join forces with the 5G people who think that Bill Gates is implanting <laughs> microchips in people? The weirdest coalition ever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, like, how, how, how do, how does, how does the left kind of respond to it when it becomes like an individual person? Like, it's not like you can be like, well, you, we should tax them. Yes, we should tax them. But, yeah. you know, it doesn't really solve the problem. Like, we're so past a Rubicon on this sort of stuff that, uh, I'm not sure what 
what could help. Yeah. I mean, yeah. in the same way that we were reading this kind of in the, um, you know, the lineage of like the trade battles of the nineties, like we're also reading, we can also read this as, uh, you know, the result of the failure of our antitrust policies, you know, like the fact that like the Bill Gates's and Bezos's and Buffett's of the, and Buffett's a little bit more complicated, but like the Bezos's and, you know, these people can continue to do this and to just like accumulate wealth and to take over all of these different verticals of our economy is just so fucked up. And yeah, I don't, I don't have an answer, but I just, just to echo that frustration and the fact that, you know, these mega corporations in the body of like individual men are dominating also like the, you know, dominating, not just um, nation states, but the fact that, you know, he's taking over essentially the policy of the WHO, which is like yeah. theoretically an organization that is supposed to counteract or to, you know, kind of capture yeah. the better natures of nation states is just, yeah. it's beyond. I mean, I feel like a lot of the demands are for the governments to step in and regulate private actors more um and the i don't know who's in charge the right or the left or the center right everyone has done such such a good job of demonizing states that it becomes really difficult to imagine governments as good actors um Mm. and yeah including gates right and the and the gates type people would say some governments are are inefficient right we don't (laughs) trust especially third world governments to do the vaccine properly like he, he was saying this week like we don't want some factory in india to do this like totally what are, what are you talking about unbelievable yeah. Um, yeah well that's that part is crazy it's so because like look i don't know can you be racist against russians you can certainly be bigoted <laughs> against russians but like do you remember like all the stuff when people like rolling their eyes and being like oh there's no way that the russian vaccine is gonna work haha putin's killing all of his own people and just like what are we basing that on? Yeah. You know, why wouldn't it work? Yeah. Right. Like, do you think that like there are no <laughs> scientists in Russia? Yeah. You know, like, do, you think, do you think that they're inc- that that every person in Russia is some sort of like internet troll farm that, you know, like it, it's know. so weird. And that that the scientists in Russia are like gonna be okay with killing off like 90% of their population. There's no way that yeah. that's true, you know? Yeah. And so it's all based on this sort of, you know, imperialist worldview on the rest of the world is being incapable of doing this sort of stuff and that of course benefits people like bill gates because he can keep it all within the united states he can all keep he can keep it in within countries that agree with his uh ideology on all of this and then anyone else who tries to say it that he can just be like oh yeah but they suck you know like they're not real it's sort of like the literary world in some ways (laughs) (laughs) be like oh wow that's not literary you know like it's this sort of it's It's, this really yeah it's this really sort of gross way of thinking about it but people buy it up they eat it up right and everyone kind of agrees and so one of the things that was interesting in the new republic article was that it was talking about how uh these ideas of innovation are tired now Right. Like how the pharmaceutical industry has just been like, well, we need uh, cash incentives. We need uh, profit incentives to innovate. And if we hadn't innovated and we didn't have those, then we wouldn't have come up with this many vaccines Mm -hmm. at once. Now, the counter example that as a good leftist we should give is that Cuba has many um, vaccines that are like far along in studies. And they're that Cuba, more than the United States in a lot of ways, has sort of gone out and tried to help the rest of the world. Yeah. But. Even if you sort of take that out and be like, well, whatever, it's Cuba. Like, you can't just keep saying Cuba. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
I don't know. It's, it's, uh, you know, that narrative is so powerful still. And that's where I disagreed yeah. with the new Republic article. I don't think it's a tired narrative. I think yeah. that the vast, vast, vast majority of Americans believe that we would have come up with zero vaccines that Moderna would not exist mm. if not for market yeah. pressures. Our current regime of intellectual property. You, Interesting. Yeah. Right. I mean, how much do you feel like this is also like a failure? Not Failure is a strong word. This is a shortcoming of the way that this has been reported in the sense that you could easily report this as the product of um, government initiatives, universities that are not for profit. Um, there's actually... I think Baylor recently, they've come up with their own vaccine using, I think, older technology that they're making completely open to the rest of the world. So that's like another one out there. But, you know, we know that the way this has been reported has been these like fawning biographies about Gates and about the, you know, the Moderna CEO and so on and so forth. And um, I was thinking, you know, I was recently watched uh, Jackie Ghosh, who, you know, coined the vaccine apartheid phrase. She was saying perhaps, we could perhaps say this is a little bit naive, but she was like, aghast at how the United States press was not talking about it at all and how if they actually did talk about this, citizens would rise up and, and you know, demand that this IP be released, which, you know, right, okay, like, <laughs> debatable, right? But but there is a question of, like, how, yeah. how much does the press... I, I'm, I'm going need to need a historical precedent when <laughs> the people of the United States have... We're pretty bad at rising up. up. <laughs> For anything. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No taxes. That's, yeah. Right. No, yeah. So before this week, it does seem like there was some um, critical mass this week in terms of reporting right. in the mainstream p- press. But yeah, before that, there, what, like, what is going on in terms of um, newspapers more or less towing the line of how property rights are good and how it's it's mm. it's the profit motive that led to innovation and, and money was the solution to all of this. Um, do you think it's just mm. like, uh, I should also mention, like, listener of the show, Stephen Brani has recent has has been publishing a lot of good stuff against this, and he recently came out with yeah. a piece this week saying that there are factories out there that are just totally waiting um, for the IP, contrary to the Nate Gates narrative. Yeah, like in Canada, right? So we're not at this point where everything is super saturated and we right. can't do more. We right. actually can do much more. Yeah. Um, but it's this one stumbling block block that is. Yeah. Uh, preventing it. Is it like um, access journalism and sports where Gates is like, no, I'll give you I an interview so. if you praise my policies and that kind of thing? I, I generally think that when people look at the media at this sort of stuff, it's usually overdetermined, right? Like, I don't think that, I don't, I think that they, that the question of this didn't really become so pressing until the past few months or past month or so when India really started getting bad. Right. And parts of Europe really started getting bad. And then the questions arise. Right. But um, I don't know. I don't think that I think it is also true that the press reflects in a lot of ways the politics of the country because they're people who believe the things that the country believes. The country believes in Bill Gates and the country believes in (laughs) intellectual property rights. Right. And um, I don't know. I think that's I think that's why. Like we don't, we're not a, we're not a leftist country, right? We're not, a, we're not an open source country, and so expecting the press to reflect that is a little bit, uh, like how, how would it? Then it wouldn't be the press; it would just be Jacobin or 
or verso or something. Yeah, well, I was going to say, like, yeah, or Adbusters, exactly. It'd be like Naomi Klein is like the czar of media or something, <laughs> <laughs> which would be, you know, like whatever. It'd be kind of great. For sure. It'd be yeah. cool, but it, it's just not where we are right now. Yeah, I oh. think in the, I mean, definitely in the summer and fall, we saw really good investigations, not only in left media, but even on the wires, like in Reuters and other places on this. And, you know, so I think like definitely they're in left and some mainstream couriers of media, there has been a lot of skepticism and scrutiny about Gates' involvement and, you know, the behavior of the Pfizer's and Moderna's of the world. But yeah, generally speaking, I guess I'd have to agree with Jay and maybe we're just being defensive because we're in media. Andy, stop blaming us. <laughs> but, you know, I do. <laughs> On a scale of one to 10, how much are you to blame? Yeah, yeah, how much exactly. are the academics to blame? Yeah, I want to know ivory, who was speaking out from the science department. The scientists, the scientists had the vaccine. The yeah, vaccine, the, yeah, the, acad- <laughs> the, the academics could just, they could have just loaded health. it up to GitHub <laughs> and then, you know, it would have been fine. Um <laughs> No, I don't. I actually think that the uh, I don't know. What do you think about the Biden administration's quick response here, though? Maybe not quick is not the right word, but response. Right yeah. um, now, it might not make a dent in, because India is so bad. Right. Um, the situation in India is so dire. I think most of the people listening to the show have seen the images of, you know, large fields of people being uh, um, what's the word? Uh, cremated. Yeah, right? the and, overflowing and, crematorium. Right. Yeah. And it is it is horrible to see in the same way that the images from New York were horrible to see. Right. Yeah. But we're talking about a country that's three times bigger than the United States. Yeah. It's much poorer than the United States with much less access to oxygen and things and therapeutics that, you know, help people survive this. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, I have a I, I feel like it's too late. Maybe, right? I mean, this but, is, this thing is going to happen. This thing could last for at least two more years, and maybe forever. You know, like yeah, it's too late. Perhaps for like next week. But well, that's where I think that the that's where I feel like the protection is coming in. I don't think that the pharmaceutical companies are necessarily that worried about giving out the first dose or the second dose, right? <laughs> What the, it's the old Chris Rock routine where Chris Rock's talking about the pharmaceutical industry. Do you remember this? No. And Chris but, Rock was basically saying like, you don't make much. He was talking about how there's never going to be a cure for AIDS, right? Mm. And he was like, because there's no money in the cure, right? As every drug dealer knows, the money is in the comeback, <laughs> which is true. And, you know, that's how pharmaceutical companies think, right? They, yeah. they think, okay, is there a way to do now? Like there's not money in funding there's not money in research for vaccines right like because everything is structured so that it becomes like the most you know something like zantac which was for a while the most profitable therapeutic in or medicine in the world because mm-hmm. you have to take it with every meal yeah. you know <laughs> and so the acid i think what, drug, the... uh-huh. oh yeah 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 for oh. sure because it affects so many people and because you have to take it so much right um you know, like the Chris Rock thing was like, uh, they could send a man to the moon, I think. You don't think they can start build like a Pinto or like a Ford where the bumper doesn't fall off? It's true. <laughs> you know? It's like basically <laughs> you need things in some ways to fail so that people have to reach back in their pockets and come back. So 
all this talk about how we're going to have to do booster shots every single year, oh et cetera, God. et cetera, et cetera. Right. Like that's what they're protecting. Yeah. Right. Um, they, and so disgusting. they think that basically if there is a world in which everyone has to get a coronavirus shot every single year yeah. and pay for it, yeah. then they're going to be rich as hell. Yeah. Right. Because they have a, the entire world as a customer once a year. As opposed yeah. to the entire world gets this thing for free, basically. And that's that's what they're protecting, at least I think, yeah. Yeah. based off Chris Rock's logic. <laughs> I think no, I think it's totally sound. And in fact, I would say with the somewhat expansive knowledge that I do have, have of how these, not expansive, but like reasonable amount of knowledge about how these things actually work, I do think that that is probably the game right here. And that's what Bill Gates is trying. They're, they're protecting a slippery slope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Domino like they, yeah. If they fall yeah. once, then it means like every single thing has to be this way. Yeah. Right. If there's an Ebola outbreak, then it has to yeah. be this way. Right. Um, yeah. So I'm I'm kind of hopeful. Not hopeful. I'm wondering if um, you know this could be like a turning point in public opinion. If it if it gets exacerbated too much, I mean it, it will definitely be. Um, and we've already seen the t- changing of because again, this is such a new thing. This 20, 30 year old. IP regime, um, and everyone keeps bringing up the counter examples of how in the mid 20th century with polio and um, other sort of global health yeah. problems that people were very quick to make things, you know, open source. And so, you know, there's a certain nostalgia for like, we just have to get back to where we were back, where we were back then. <laughs> and that's, you know, people were alive. I mean, people alive today were alive back then. It's not that long right. ago. You know, right. Right. Um, um, so we'll see if like people begin to actually show more interest in a world before global IP. Um, mm-hmm. carved up everything but um, you know so. I if okay like if you, I'm sure these polls exist but I want to know your both of your opinions on this if you were to poll uh, 1,000 random Americans all across the country and ask them do you think that we should make one of these vaccines open source so that the rest of the world can get their coronavirus cases under control what percentage do you think would say yes Wow. I'd say 70. I think 72. Yeah. I think it would have a mass, <laughs> massive pocket. I, I guess going to say but... no. I was going to say 50. But... Well, I was but thinking like, like health, public, universal healthcare is super popular. It's just that, right? The, right. The, but that's the cor- in the U.S. Oh, but like the United States doesn't have it. Like it's super popular outside the U.S. too. Right. Oh, that no. Yeah. But I just mean like I feel like Americans often just care about themselves. And that's that's why oh, I was going to say 50. Yeah. But I, I think in general, Americans are probably more to the left on this than we think because they know I think how, so how miserable this is. And oh, guys, you guys are so optimistic. <laughs> well, no, well, but here's the problem. Corporations the problem are is that well, essentially. Well, I know, but at least there's the sentiment. <laughs> yeah. I think Americans are, are like a lot of people are sort of facing this dual paradox and it, it doesn't exist only in. Uh, medicine is basically the American condition as far as I can tell, which is that their pragmatic brain tells them that uh, these types of things should obviously happen, right? And then their other part of the brain says, but it won't ever happen, right? Mm. And that's the part where they sort of like, well, this is just the way things are. Like, I can't do anything about it. And it leads to a world, I think, which we've just seen increasingly more where a small percentage of ideologues with a ton of power get to control the world under that ideology without any form of popular support, right? Only through basically telling people you don't get to question this. And so, yeah, I think that's where I think the two can 
join where America is a country that believes in IP rights, right? Like that's even if uh, in this instance, people would say, don't do it. But people's sort of uh, fealty to that is fealty the right word. I don't know what that means, but yeah. like, you know, their, their attachment to that type of idea is uh, overrides their own pragmatic concerns, right? Which they could express in a poll, for example, saying, we should probably go help these other countries because I don't want to get variant yeah. 97 yeah. that comes down the pipe. Right. But, and then it doesn't matter because the people in power don't have to do anything. Right. Like they don't have to do shit, you know, like they're like, what, what would it even look like? Like uh, that could get this to change. Like, I don't, do you think yeah. that mass protests at Pfizer, for example, would change this? Well, there is, when does the vote in uh, the, is it the UN or the, the WHO, there's going to be a vote in terms of suspending trips, um, whether or not to, to waive it temporarily. That's going to come up like next week or this week. So there's, you know, Tammy shared information of a, of, a, of a public rally for that. But I don't know if that's actually going to, I mean, I don't know how much like people are going to be invested because again, it's like, it's not their own self-interest. It's like, except for some sort of general global humanity self-interest. I mean, I think you're right that, I mean, who believes in IP? You know, capitalists do, right? But like right. most of us don't, right? Most of us are, I mean, maybe on a, on a basic level, like, yeah, property is good, but um, they, most, most people believe in universal healthcare at this point. Most people probably believe in like spreading a drug during a, pan, a, a vaccine during a pandemic. Um, but you're also right that most people are kind of demobilized or unmotivated because they don't actually like, see a route where they can actually affect yeah. change. But I or, think Biden or is feel totally alienated to, to the public yeah. politics. Oh, sorry, Tammy, yeah. go ahead. No, I was just going to say, but I think Biden's change responds to public pressure and that people are getting activated yeah. to some extent around this and maybe feeling a bit more empowered that even ordinary people can understand like what certain WTO rules would mean for us. I mean, that's it's so arcane and it's deliberately arcane. You know, so I think that's part of uh, the task also is that we just like learn and try to feel that we we can do something. But yeah, the the other cynical reading sure. is that um, you know this is a response to China because China has awful, also offered to give vaccines to India, and this is an op, another not necessarily a direct response to that offer, but just like in general, the United States sees that there is sort of this um, you know it's. It's it's uh, undecided whether or not the United States or China will be the next global su- or will continue to be the next global superpower. So they have to take the lead with vaccine diplomacy. Um, yeah, and this was the good part of the Cold War. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> in theory, right? right? So I think that's another thing that they're thinking about, right? And people have talked about oh, how the United States considers India a strategic ally, but are abandoning them now at this time. This sort of hypocrisy might be the kind of bad PR that. Yeah. Biden right, I'm like, trying to avoid Kamala the, and Asari. <laughs> the weird thing is that if you think about this from like, a, like let's put ourselves in the minds of like a full imp- U.S. imperialist, right? <laughs> like, obviously, the right thing to do is to just uh, give all these people. The I know. And so, like, hello. Essentially, the we've reached this point where the the concerns of the pharmaceutical industry, and this has been mm-hmm. going on forever, obviously, but yeah. the concerns of the pharmaceutical industry. And Bill Gates have trumped the imperialist, even <laughs> the imperialist, like global manifestos. Wow. It's the only thing that matters. And I don't know. I think it should, 
look, there I look, there are people who already feel this way, but I think that it should make it very clear that that's what who's in charge of the world at this point, right? Like it's yeah. like of, of of course the United States should go to these countries if you're just an imperialist and you think, you know, it's great to spread democracy or whatever, right? Yeah. That um of course they should just be like here's some vaccines, you know? Um but now instead of the United States negotiating with these countries, you know, I saw this thing where I, it was publicized quite a bit where Pfizer now, I think, mm-hmm, uh, and yeah. like pharmaceutical companies are going to foreign countries and basically saying you need to put up like military bases as collateral and stuff like that. Yeah. And so it's basically pharmaceutical companies acting as global Doing hegemons, you know, yeah. and, and essentially like, you know, forcing foreign countries to leverage themselves yeah. to get the vaccine, which... Uh, I don't know. It's Unreal. it seems like it shouldn't happen, but of course it's happening. You know, this is um, a, because our entire government works for those people. Yeah, no. So this is an article my friend Matt showed, shared. I forget the website, but we were talking about this in the context of the 1980s debt crisis, how a lot of demands were placed on like Africa, Latin America, South Asia, as a condition of forgiving their debt. They would like basically rewrite their entire economic rules yeah, of their country. Structural adjustment. And it seems like Pfizer's doing the same thing. They're like, well, if you we'll give you the vaccine on our time frame if you give us impunity and you never sue us for any future problems. Uh, right. that's that's apparently what the negotiations that are happening. And uh, yeah, so yeah. they are themselves like extra governmental actors. Yeah. Um, that are acting like governments with like government to government relations. Totally. So I have two big questions that come out of this. The first is, well, what would the alternative look like, right? Um, it's hard to imagine, right? But what is a, what would what would a better system be? I mean, didn't didn't the WHO have a better system that Gates hijacked? What was it called? C CTAP. They did. They were Which, trying to do IP sharing. Yeah, like right. their version of open source. Mm-hmm. But I guess yeah. the question is, how do you contain this monster known as the Gates Foundation? Or what is a world that people are, you know, that they are afraid of, right? That we should support. Like, what, what is this? What's at the bottom of the slippery slope? Um, you know, just sort of like, you know, open source type of sharing in the way that, you know, programming used to be. Or yeah, is that is that the idea? And and you know, sort of small margin type of, uh, or state run, uh, factories. And distribution <laughs> and development of this is that is that what we're talking about? It's a global. That's socialism. certainly my <laughs> fantasy, but um, yeah, I guess I mean people talk about like trade justice. People talk about this. Health justice. People talk about this. The fact that, as we've alluded to, um, you know, most vaccines and other medical and drugs and other medical products are a result of government investment. And that's yeah. certainly true in COVID, maybe more so than anything else in history right. where we've pumped in $25 billion into this. Um, and so I think part of it is governments being like, oh, wait, that's ours. That means it's for the people. And so, you know, I think like in the in our socialist imagination, we should be thinking in those terms of it's public investment, it's owned by the public, and it's shared by the public. You know, and what how exactly that that happens i i don't know but that's what i imagine is is vaccine justice yeah yeah i don't i don't know the history of this but i imagine you know 30 40 years ago there were pharmaceutical companies they were just a lot of restrictions on exactly. what they could do and probably like shorter windows in terms of i don't know I, i'm just making this up now but i assume like shorter patent windows or something like that right or 
and more restrictions or like the government has the right to like open up um, in the times of emergency, like IP laws or something. Um, if, if one doesn't, if one feels squeamish about world government, <laughs> um, sort of like a, a limited form of private, um, private industry, maybe. That seems realistic within our lifetime. Well, it was within our lifetime, but I don't know about going forward. Well, and it's ironic to to be having these conversations on the heels of what's happened to Purdue after the, you know, during yeah. and after, you know, the, the height of the opioid epidemic, because we've, I mean, that is like such a clear oh. case where at every single turn, this company and the Sacklers were saying to the government and saying to all of us, like, we want people to die. Like, we want to make these things as addictive as possible and as harmful as possible so people stay on this. So why should then during the COVID, you know, epidemic, we decide, well, actually, we're going to revise our understanding of the way pharma operates. It's all the same people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe, in, I don't know, who knows, but I, I do, I, I'm not, again, I don't know if this is, if I'm optimistic, but it does seem like an opening has been created. With that type of public so criticism is, is being, you know, obviously it moved Biden to move like one inch this week, right? But totally. hopefully, hopefully um, public sentiment going forward will, you know, the history is on, or momentum is on the side of that, of, of, on that side. Yeah, it'll be very interesting what the United States does with all of its doses once, you know, we kind of get the point that everyone, and we're close to it at this point, honestly, I think, where everyone who's going to get vaccinated yeah. at least has had one dose. And there's going to be some non, non-insignificant non portion of the population that's just never going to get it um, and sort of waiting to make sure that they have it and withholding all the doses for them is just going to not seem feasible. And mm. I think that's partially why all this AstraZeneca stuff. I mean, we don't even use the AstraZeneca vaccine here in the United States, so it, it seems very obvious why they would do that. But um, I don't know. I, I think that, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't downplay Biden's action here uh, or the administration's action here too much. But at the same time, I don't know, I guess like you just think about the future and you're like, all right, well, the pandemic passes and then we have all these climate emergencies, right? And we're just going to go through the same thing yeah. over and over and over and over and over again. And I have a hard time believing that like, crisis can shock us out of this type of mentality because it just didn't this time and if it wasn't yeah. this and i don't know that's what i always think it's like well it's not this and what's gonna what's it gonna take you know <laughs> like we've oh been God. sitting it's, like, it's totally unprecedented it's crazy to think what this year is what the past year has been you know and then it's like well i think it's early i mean yeah you kind of expect it like to happen this year but i do think uh, I don't think these things happen gradually, I think is my point. I think they happen because of, you know, large, like, shakeups and then new things come out. And it seems like Bill Gates is just more powerful than everybody yeah. else at yeah. this point. Um, second question, last question for the show. Do you think that there is, do you think that the focus on Trump's failures obscured in some ways from the public, the, you know, I don't know. I'll just say capitalism and how it was going to be a problem here. <laughs> it was going to um, be a problem. <laughs> yeah. You mean you mean the last year of the Trump administration, or just like all four years of it? No, I just think everybody blaming you know basically f- turning the focus of the of the failure of the pandemic right, onto okay. Trump. Right? Um, do you think it obscured the ways in which pharmaceutical companies and and that and basically the infrastructure of the United States was going to make it difficult for us to have any sort of uh, reasonable response. Um, 
or even like not even just Trump, right? Like the blaming of individual people for not wearing masks and stuff like that. Mm. When really like this, like this issue with IP and vaccines, like the amount of people that it's going to either save or not save is magnitudes and magnitudes and magnitudes higher than any of those individual decisions were, right? We could have had testing out on the first day of the pandemic here and uh, it wouldn't have, you know, it would have made a difference, but nothing compared to like if India had been able to get vaccinated ahead of the curve, right? Um, uh, if you think about it globally or some of these countries where, you know, they haven't even really had their crisis yet, but it's coming. Um, I don't know. Do you think that that perhaps there's too much domestic politics type of focus on this and too much Trump Trump blaming? Not to say Trump did a good job. He obviously did a bad job and he's a bad person. <laughs> but, um, you know, was there some sort of der- Trump derangement type of thing going on? I think yes, in the sense that his complete incompetence and inaction because of that, and I think, again, we've said this, we maybe said this very early on last year, it provided an opening because we all needed a hero and we all wanted to be saved, which is understandable. But I think that's part of what's so dangerous about electing somebody like that, because that's just necessarily a consequence of incompetence, that mm-hmm. it elevates these, you know, these horrible actors, additional horrible actors. Um, yeah, my answer yeah. is Yes. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's like a specific mechanism where, oh, if we hadn't focused so much on Trump, we would have done X, Y, Z. But I agree. Like, I remember last April or so, I was talking to a friend who's like a lefty and we're like both so relieved that Bill Gates has this shit under control, you know? Mm. And like, we know that's wrong, but it was like, it's very, it's very nice to hear Bill Gates go on like Sanjay Gupta's show, right? And and talk and like give these nice PR talking (laughs) points about how pharmaceutical companies will get a vaccine and they'll get under control and um i I just looking back on those months i just feel like things were so crazy that people's first reaction was any vaccine is better than no vaccine and you were making perfect the enemy of the good to quibble about um you know private versus public but even though there were signs early on that this is not good right uh and the who has been discredited you know i mean they still are being discredited uh which fine it's like a flawed institution but it's still uh not a private company you know like it's it's like it's all we have to fight private companies Um, right so i I agree with you andy in the end that we're probably closer to these types of conversations than we've been in a long time um you know people really questioning the power that these places have but i do think that the default discourse in this country now is to just sort of look at the president and make it about the president's individual's failings or successes. Um, And that's just sort of, you know, I don't know, not to be so reductive, but that's just the way things work here. But nobody cares about Biden. You know, I'm actually kind of weirded out by this. Like he announced like a new deal last month and nobody seems to be talking about it. He, I mean, Biden himself, I think is not, does not want to be front and center anyway. Um, but I don't see that much coverage of the administration like like he's the opposite of Trump. I mean, I guess there's a sense of like, oh, everything, everything's under control now. But I, I think people right. are exhausted Yeah. also, you yeah. know. But I th- but, and also with the infrastructure plan and other good things Biden has 
promoted, we're so far away from getting that legislated. And we know all of these different steps have to occur. Whereas with the pandemic, I agree that there was an over-concentration in this particular person and body, but also federal power was so needed and the executive could have done so much that it actually was like a reasonable expectation for our president to deliver on X, Y, and Z. So I'm so, yeah, I feel like that was such a hectic and traumatic time. And, but yeah, we, I mean, I think we definitely let the Bill Gateses of the world get away with murder. I think Americans now are complacent and relieved. And they want yeah, summer to come. Think so. And they want to get vaccinated. Well, you know, somewhat yeah. deservedly, but <laughs> um, you know, it's uh, it's it's. I think it's. I think that it will. I think the focus will shift as other countries start really getting bad. Yeah. You know, um, and uh, I don't know. I don't know what the response will be, but. Um, I don't know. This this is different than there just being a war in another country or something like that, or a, or a humanitarian crisis. Like this is you can sell this in people's best interests here. Um, and uh, I don't know. I I see some of it, and hopefully there's more because that's eventually what will get people to respond to it. Be like, do you want to go through this again? You know, then get this shit in India under yeah. control because yeah. you saw how it spread last time. You know. Um, and maybe that is maybe that will come. Uh, um, hopefully so. that will come. I, I do um, worry. I'm not saying you're doing this or anything, I, but I do worry like an extreme version of this could be something like we should only care if it's going to hurt us. And that might take away from the sort of, mm. you know, like that is still a little bit like, well, if it didn't come back to the United States, then we should just leave India to die. You know, uh, I'm not saying you're doing right. this right, but I do think. I I, uh, I do when I hear that argument, I wonder if some people might be going in that direction pretty soon. Sure, but it's still more convincing than we should just do it be, to help right. the Indian people, right? right. right? Yeah. And so if there's a, you know, you don't have to, like it's a effective, it's totally argument. pragmatic, kind of. Right. Um, okay. Anything else? Oof, no. It's tough. It's a tough conversation. Yeah. Well, luckily we have the accent conversation at the start of the show. <laughs> um, the uh, thanks for listening to the show. Uh, we do this every week, sometimes twice a week. Uh, I think this later this week we're going to have my conversation with Tamara Knopper, who is a uh, somebody who studies um, a lot of the stuff that we talk about on the show, and uh, is a very compelling, interesting conversation. I've known Tamara for a long time, and argued with her and agreed with her and every 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 iteration of that and so um if you'd like to support the show you can sign up for our patreon at ttsg no i'm sorry patreon.com slash ttsg pod and you can join our discord server which right now is almost 500 people i think and you know conversations go on all day um and they're great and we learn a lot about it we have like a book club that we do on there where we invite the authors to come on there's a music listening room where people sort of (laughs) sit and play music and talk about it which i find to be the best part of the discord um and uh yeah conversations about organizing um people sharing information and so if you want access to that you can do you can join on patreon or you can subscribe through substack which is goodbye.substack.com or you can, uh, what else? Oh, or you can email the show at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. Okay, until next week, uh, 
I'll talk to you later, Andy and Tammy. Bye, guys. Please call Stella. Ask her to bring these things with her from the store. Six spoons of fresh snow peas, five thick slabs of blue cheese, and maybe a snack for her brother, Bob. We also need a small plastic snake and a big toy frog for the kids. She can scoop these things into three red bags and we will go meet them. Please call Stella. Ask her to bring these things with her from the store. Six spoons of fresh snow peas, five thick slabs of blue cheese, and maybe a snack for her brother Bob. We also need a small plastic snake and a big toy frog for the kids. She can scoop these things into three red bags, and we'll go meet her Wednesday at the train station. <laughs>